0: You're going to find Mark chapter 1 on page 836 of your Pew Bible. It's going to help you even more today to be in the text with me uh, to see not only what is packed, absolutely jam-packed into Mark 1, 1 through 15, but then also uh, we are going to, in this service, be kind of flying over up to verse 35, which the late service, will look at that very specifically as well. And if you always want more later in the week, a different take on the sermon with 15 minutes added on, you can listen to that late service sermon on our website, sp815.org. But that said, you're still going to get a taste of it this morning as we hover over it. And, and that's leading into then what we'll look at next week, etc., but we're going to spend the bulk of our time going verse by verse through verses one through fifteen, and hopefully, just kind of trying to absorb the fire hose that is the way Mark tells the story. Uh, it, to to put it in in context, like by the end of verse fifteen in Matthew, we're we're barely out of the genealogy of Jesus. Like nothing's happened yet, and we've already got the temptations over. It's done, you know, uh, in Mark uh, chapter one. This story moves fast, which has led some scholars in the past who have, I think, too much time on their hands and not enough concern for Christendom. And I'm talking 1800s right now, but it's been parroted ever since. Uh, they, they say that Mark was hastily written, okay? It's maybe the first gospel And the reason for that is because it's so hastily written, it's kind of like he didn't know what he was doing, and he just kind of grabbed it all and threw it all together. But then later, along came Matthew, thank goodness who cleaned it up and published Matthew based on Mark. But Matthew also has some material Mark doesn't have, and so we're not sure where he got that. Luke did the same thing. He maybe used Matthew and Mark and some other material. We don't know what happened to that, and John probably wasn't even written until the 300s. and None of it's true anyway, and now we're at 1960s, and uh, liberalism is set into the churches. So the, the slippery slope there is very real when you start questioning Mark's value because you think it moves too fast. It moves fast because Mark is telling you one heaven of a story. And it is bold. It is brash. It is filled with power and glory. It is filled with a whole lot of crazy. There is violence and conflict. There is fear. And then there is Jesus, the son of God, who's kind of the cause of all of it. He's so good, but he's so not like us. Who is this man? The disciples will ask of him. Mark's confession of our Savior Jesus goes hand in hand with who Matthew says he is, who Luke says he is, who John says he is, who Paul says he is. Mark is giving us probably Peter's own take as an associate of Peter, um, Peter's own take on the life of Jesus, his confession of who his Lord is. That is what he remembers, what he saw, what mattered, what he preached, right? It's not that he preached a different gospel. Matthew and Mark are not different promises of God to save us. They're the same gospel in the Lutheran sense, Yeah, but they're, they're different gospels. Uh, they're different uh, viewpoints. They're different ways of telling the story. And again, Mark is going to challenge us, uh, in part because of the fire hose, it's going to go so fast, there's so much there. But in part also, many of the platitudes about Jesus that exist in Western American Christianity, particularly with regard to how it's all about being nice, um, Jesus is going to challenge that. You're going to see a very confrontational, very manly Jesus. Uh, who people can't help uh, but believe is, in fact, from God, right? So, all right, verse 1 then, yeah? Uh, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, Maybe put your finger uh, right there in the book, and and let's see if you remember when we did this before. I want you to find Romans chapter 1. This is... On page uh, 939, do you remember this? You might not have been here that week, but we did Romans chapter one, very, very verse by verse. Uh, Sometime, I think it might've been in like April or June or something like that. And I spent a whole lot of time talking about verse one and verse three. In verse one, Paul, a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for, there it is, The gospel of God, what is that? What does he mean by this word, gospel, that he set apart for, that he wants us to believe? And how in verse 3, Paul tells you what he means, at least so far as the book of Romans is concerned, straight up. It is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead and uh, i would encourage you just to hear that as the gospel is that the son of david is the son of god who is risen. is risen he is risen alleluia so paul has the gospel as the son of david who rises from the dead what does mark say the gospel is that's what i want us to look for now so go go back to mark eight thirty six, and remember Everything's in harmony. Mark's not going to say something different than Paul said, but Mark might say it differently. Yes. Uh, and we're, we're hunting for that theology, that that knowledge of God. So the beginning of the gospel, that's the storyline here. How does the gospel begin? And I would suggest it's John appeared. Right? Baptizing, that's the beginning of the gospel. Uh, that is what is prophesied by verses two and three. But, but what is the gospel? He hasn't told us that in verse one, except for he he does a little bit. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So so the gospel is Jesus and Jesus is the son of God. Right there is at least the beginning of the gospel that, that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, is the Son of God. It's the same thing Paul said, in fact. It's not even different a little bit. It's not even a different way of saying it. It's the same thing. Now, he's going to say a little more in a few more verses, right, uh, uh, on the gospel. But now, this beginning of the gospel in John, it, Mark says, has been foretold of old through all the prophets of the Old Testament, but he'll go ahead and quote Malachi, excuse me, I'm sorry, Isaiah, uh, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, with more time, we could go back and look at the context of that text in Isaiah and who is talking about him and, and what the typology means for what's going to happen. But for now, we're also just free to take Mark's word for it that That whole thing written on Isaiah was actually about John who appeared. And in one very real sense, Mark is just cutting through an ancient uh, Jewish question. Who is Elijah? How will he come before the Christ? He's getting that out of the way right away and just saying Elijah came and he was John. Let's not argue about that. Let's hear the story. So moving to the story, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, This is a stunning thing. We could spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about baptism as a Jewish ritual of purification for non-Jews and how weird it is that a Jew like John would come preaching, you need to be baptized, all you Jewish people. Or repentance. Uh, there is no baptism for the Jew. He's born a Jew. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He needs no baptism. John comes preaching a baptism, and it doesn't even talk about like that that matters. Just what happens. Verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Uh, there is a thunderous riot taking place culturally at this time. Uh, The early first century, your life would have been pretty normal every day. uh, And yet there were a lot of spectacles taking place, particularly in Palestine. Uh, There are several rebellions started by pseudo messiahs at various times, whether amongst the Jews or otherwise, who are trying to gain Power, money, prestige, who knows? They start up something trying to cast off Rome. Uh, The the point being is that there are spectacles of weird men gathering groups together in ways that we only see on television today. But they would have been happening around uh, often enough that they become the talk. Right. So here's another one. Here's a spectacle. Is this a prophet? Is this the Messiah? Is this a zealot? What's he going to do for poor, lonely Israel? Well, uh, John uh, clearly thinks he's a prophet based on how he is dressed. Verse six. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Um, this we should take as historical fact. It is what John did. By doing this, whether instructed to by God or just deciding to do it this way, he is making a statement about being like Elijah. Um, I, I don't know, uh, this is probably going to date me as an example, but maybe you're old enough to remember, you know, Michael Jackson would wear a glove on one hand in the 80s whenever he performed there's like a shimmery glove he would always wear it right Uh, and so imagine now like you know right now someone comes on the scene in the pop music industry and they wear a shimmering glove well whether they're good or not they're trying to say something right they're trying to say something john's saying something by wearing camel's hair He's saying, I'm in the line of Elijah, and there hasn't been a prophet for over 400 years, but hey, I'm here now. And yeah, I live a little weird, because, well, what happened when the prophets came to Jerusalem before? What do they precede, usually? Where what do they lead up to? Well, it's destruction. Why? Because of its unholiness and uncleanness and rejection of God. And so they forsook the comforts of the city and the prophets lived in the wilderness, comfortable there and content with what they had, even turning away large portions of money brought by Syrian troops and whatnot. Does Naaman's story ring a bell? Uh, John is just going to do this too. So he leaves the city. He goes to the wilderness, but he begins again to speak about repentance. He's calling out, the wickedness of the culture in which he lives, and it's causing a stir. The people are coming to hear him talk about it. They're admitting that they're part of the problem. They're committing to changing their ways, and he then preaches to them this. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, as Isaiah says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who I will also send. John came baptizing into repentance that this was going to come to pass, saying I'm actually the forerunner, right? Um, And then he preaches that that means after me comes the real deal. And he's so much the real deal that whatever you think of me, a prophet at whose feet culturally people would bow to the ground and kiss the dust out of respect, This guy who's coming, I don't even deserve to do that to him. I shouldn't even be in his presence. Uh, He's that clean, he's that pure, he's that good. Uh, John will say in another place, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what he means when he says, my baptism right now is just with water. But this other one who's mightier than I, who is holy and pure and clean and good and is coming, his baptism, his washing, uh, it's not just water. It is, in fact, the the Holy Spirit, who now is to invoke an Old Testament name for who God is. We Trinitarian Christians know that means not the Father, it means not the Son, but but the Holy Spirit is God, God of God, uh, very God of very God, all these things. Uh, And so uh, you're going to be washed with him in this other guy that is coming. And look, here he is. John doesn't waste much time. In verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There's your Christmas story in Mark right there. That's it, right? He came from Nazareth to Galilee. Uh, You miss almost the whole thing, yeah? Uh, Why? You can argue why something's missing. Uh, What seems to matter again is now jesus is fulfilling the role that isaiah has prophesied right that that's coming to pass and him coming out of nazareth uh is indeed uh, what matthew will say fulfills the prophecy uh, of galilee light of the gentiles and all this stuff but this is indeed part of the gospel being for everybody not just for the jews but again that's a lot uh, in a little tiny verse That's the thing about Mark is every verse is like its own chapter in the book. I mean, it's just moving along Um, so that Jesus is baptized. And there's there's no protestation from John. No, uh, it is I who should be baptized by you. there's none of that conversation. There's no talk really of the crowds. It's just the verse about it happens. And then when he came up out of the water, verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens. Now, I love the the violence here. Don't miss it. Being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So one of the other really kind of unique things about Mark, verse by verse, is that, okay, he moves fast. uh, He packs a lot into each verse that he says, and then he'll say these little, just unique words that aren't in Matthew and Luke. Just little extra pieces. There's more of that coming in what we've got this morning. But the heavens being torn—that's uh, that's a little extra flavor. Mark has spice that isn't in the other gospels. I, 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 the the old fantasy geek in me loves this image of the sky just being ripped in shreds, and then you know light breaking through it all, and this bird. Fire coming down, it's just—I love to ponder this this idea here, and being torn open helps with that. Uh, but whatever it looked like, and and I think from the. All the gospels together, we can know that the only ones who really saw this were Jesus and John. The crowds maybe heard something or uh, knew something happened, but it was confusion to them. Uh, Jesus and John are the ones who get this voice. And that's so that John might say that Jesus is the Christ. It's like a witness uh, to Jesus, Jesus and the Spirit witnessing to himself at that moment in any case a little bit of a tangent there the spirit coming down upon him is nonetheless god pouring out his holy spirit upon all mankind in the one whom he loves even before the one whom he loves go to buy goes to buy the rest of us so so throughout jesus ministry and life uh, he is to be seen as the ultimate man the one in whom all things have been fulfilled, uh, even before his death, in the sense of himself. Right? Although you know Hebrews tells us he had to be made perfect through suffering, and there's all this stuff about being the perfect servant, obedient unto death. So, so don't get me wrong. But what I mean is, uh, uh, Lutherans, uh, Western Christians, we we maybe undervalue the incarnation sometimes. There's even a historic debate about it because what we do see sometimes is in the eastern church they overvalue the incarnation and lutherans will be really quick to point out that the reason they overvalue the incarnation is because they devalue the cross by it sometimes Uh, so that lutherans we want to keep our value on the cross and, and amen hallelujah to this but we don't want to devalue the incarnation the fact that the holy spirit of god recognizes jesus christ God in man is pure and clean and good and able to be inhabited as God intends it to be is a massive moment and a massive mark in the history of mankind. And God says so when he speaks with his own voice, verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, a man, not just the son of God eternal, but the son of God, a man. And with you, I am well pleased. He's already happy with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. He's just going to ascend to heaven right now if he wants to. Uh, he doesn't want to. Why? Well, because the Father has sent him to a task which is saving you. Uh, so he's not going to do that. But he he's okay as he is. But what he's here to do now, right, is come to we who are not okay as we are, uh, and to make us one with Himself. All right. So well, so being here to do that, right, uh, to be our our ransom to take our place, to be our purchaser and master. He comes, he stands in the water, he's baptized, he hears that he's God's son. The Spirit is there, and then don't miss how in verse 12, the Spirit is active in Jesus, almost as if he is a man possessed. Because he is a man possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. And this Holy Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The Greek there is like the word hurled, right? Threw it hard. Right? It's, it's as if, the way Mark tells the story, again, get caught up in the story, that's the idea. Is as if, like, Jesus comes out of the water, walks up, and there's a crowd of people, but he can't have time for them. He just has to be driven out of them into the wilderness where, right, where? He was 40 days being tempted by Satan. Verse 13. Now, just as Mark's gonna or Matthew's gonna spend like 12, 15 verses on the temptation, we, we barely get it. He was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. There it is, it's over, done. What happened? You know, where did the temptation go? Well, uh, he was ministered to by angels. Mark just Puts it there for you, right? Very quickly, but but no depth and detail. And yet, there is detail. The detail is the Holy Spirit possessed Jesus and cast him out into the wilderness to fight the demon. But that's the detail. Uh, that's what he wants you to get. The power of what God is doing in Jesus. Also, weird detail. No one else mentions. The wild animals. You can find scholars that will argue for pages and pages. What does Mark mean by that? Jesus in the wilderness being tempted was with the wild animals, and had the angels ministered to him. The angels are mentioned in other gospels, but not the wild animals. And honestly, I I don't I don't really have a perfect answer. Uh, some make the argument that this shows the harmony of heaven and earth. As if kind of the lion and the lamb are laying down with Jesus after he beats the devil, right? Um, And so the angels and the lion and the lamb is a harmony. I don't know. Could be. Um, uh, I'm a little more partial uh, to the one wherein uh, he was with the wild beasts in the wilderness is part of being tempted by the devil. Like the jackals are prowling. There's no food. It's dark at night. It's scary, right? The devil is there doing his wicked thing. But there are angels and, and they are ministering to him. So I kind of look at it that way, Um, but either one of those is fine. And it's not worth, again, you know, getting too hung up on. It it is one of those nuggets, though, like a little tasty detail. The the animals, the animals are surrounding Jesus. Why? You know, what's that mean? He's out there. It doesn't even say he beats the devil in the temptation, but we know that he does. Uh, But we shift back to the story about John uh, in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came from Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So it's, it's kind of like, if you look back at verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus is the whole story about Jesus being baptized by John, tempted in the wilderness. And now the continuance of the gospel of Jesus is that after John dies, the beginning's over, well, here comes what the gospel is. Now, we already know that the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God, but what's this Son of God do? Again, verse 14, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is something Jesus says himself, right? It's something he says himself, It's his words of promise to save. And I think there are many ways in this to say the gospel. We want to talk like Lutherans for a second. I can tell you your sins are forgiven. I can tell you you're going to rise from the dead. I can tell you that the blood paid for you, right? Those are all the gospel. But now Paul has, excuse me, Mark has Jesus saying it this way, right? Here's how Jesus said the gospel in Mark 1:15. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I don't think uh, he said, repent and believe the gospel as part of the gospel. <laughs> uh, I guess the next thing he said, uh, repent and believe the gospel. I don't think the gospel can be part of his own definition. If the gospel is believe the gospel, you don't you don't have much there, right? Um, but but if the gospel is, the end of the world has come, and I'm the king, um, well, that's something to believe. and it is definitely something that you might want to consider a reason to repent. And so when he then says, as the next thing, you know, I'm the end of the world is here, I'm the king of the world, repent and believe that the end of the world is here, and I'm the king of the world. Quote Jesus. That's that's Mark's gospel, that the Son of God entered history to declare that history was over because he had arrived to become the king. And that his presence as king is enough to make a new kingdom sprout, bloom, blossom, and grow eternally, even from the thorny soil of mankind. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Beautiful. Beautiful hope, beautiful man, beautiful king, beautiful God. Now we got about 5 minutes here. I'd like to just again float over what we're not going to look at as uh, uh we look at it the later service again today. You can kind of see it just in the headings what happens next, right? He's preaching the kingdom is here. He then calls four men to follow him specifically uh, Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John. He tells them they're going to be fishermen. And you can make a lot of hay out of that, although most of the hay I've heard in, in American churches get fishermen completely wrong. They have no idea that it's a reference to Jeremiah, uh, and they instead like to talk about casting their their pole on the weekends, which uh, nobody would have done in the time of Jesus uh, in Galilee. And uh, that said, uh, they're going to fish for men. They're going to hunt souls. They're going to become preachers is what's going to happen to these guys. Uh, the next thing that happens though, not much time on them. You're just given their names. Verses 21 through 28, there's an event with an unclean spirit at church. So he goes into church, And a guy who's been there a long time suddenly starts acting all weird because Jesus is present and he gets so up into it, he starts calling Jesus the son of God and there's a kind of showdown confrontation right there in church. Uh, Jesus will cast this unclean spirit again. Interesting that the demon is called an unclean spirit, he will cast this demon out, and this will cause his notoriety, his fame to spread. Uh, This is a guy who not only doesn't really take anything from anyone, that is, he has no partiality, he says what he thinks, he's a teacher of the word, Uh, but he also, when he runs into uh, devils, uh, just chases them away. Uh, It's it's quite a thing. And so, of course, people are going to hear about this upstart prophet, revolutionary, all these many things that are happening in the world at the time. Meanwhile, he's not just dealing with unclean spirits, he's also healing diseases, uh, so that he's going to heal Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. This is followed by a house being filled with people that are of all kinds of illnesses, and they're all being healed by Jesus. Uh, The next morning, however, even though there are plenty of people there continuing to want his services, uh, he is not to be found. He's out uh, praying quietly. Uh, The disciples join him. He says, let's go somewhere else because I need to preach. Which is interesting. Again, not heal. He didn't come to heal. He came to preach. He did the healing absolutely, and he can't get away from it um, because what we're going to see happening uh, shortly after that uh, is uh, the cleansing of a leper and so forth. But that'll that'll take us into next week's text. So there you have. Again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one thing to take away from our additional stories is after Jesus has been possessed by the Holy Spirit to be mankind in righteousness, fighting on God's behalf, and been driven out to face the devil in the wilderness, when he returns to society, he faces the devils there. The casting out of that demon in the synagogue is So fast in Mark and will continue to be a major portion of the way Mark views Jesus. Jesus isn't just here fighting Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, He's also here dealing with the fallen angels. And it's so much a case that they know who he is and they tremble. Uh, Just like James says, they know who he is and they tremble. Uh, What I want then for us to grow in our knowledge of Christ is to be a people who know who God is and then tremble as well, but in the good way in which we know this trembling is a matter of his being behind us, and that indeed the demons do tremble when Christ comes present. And because you feast upon the body and blood of Jesus, that means the demons tremble when you come present. Even if yours is the only angel in the room, You are a member of the body of Jesus Christ and therefore his presence in this age according to the precious promises of baptism and is declaring you to be his own by oaths that will never pass away. The beginning of the gospel of Mark in the name of Jesus, amen.